Good morning. I'm Felicia King, and you're listening to Breakfast Bites. Today's show, we're going to talk about counterparty risk as it relates to business technology. And I'm going to relate this to all kinds of recent news events, because this theme song of counterparty risk and dealing with it, evaluating it, managing it, is such an enormous aspect. It's a huge theme song that seems to be running through every thread that's going on lately. So let's start off with the TrickBot UEFI BIOS mods. Okay, well, you know, that's a counterparty risk right there. (laughs) So TrickBot is a piece of ransomware and it's modifying the BIOS. Uh, when it modifies the UEFI settings in the BIOS, then that's effectively a pre-boot access methodology. And these are referred to as UEFI pre-boot infections. And this is not actually anything new. I can remember probably the year 2010, maybe it was even earlier than that, there was uh, somebody in Kenosha that I knew who was a retired professional who continued to get nasty things on their computer because they would go to foreign country websites looking for legitimate things. Okay, they were looking for legitimate things. But these websites were hacked and they delivered malware to the computer And this malware would install in a persistent way into the partition table. Well, now the malware is installing in a persistent way into the motherboard. And this also isn't anything new. So when you're thinking about counterparty risk, you have to ask who has set up your computer? Did they set it up with a BIOS admin password? Are they maintaining the firmware? on the motherboard. And if that's you, well, and you don't know what I'm talking about, well, you better go do some research and either figure it out how to do it yourself, or you better get some help from somebody who knows how to do that stuff. I think this entire concept of saying, oh, well, you're going to have somebody from California look at your computer a couple times a year, that is a completely dead model. And I mean, really, really dead. If you are not paying for patch management services with someone who has a system and the skill set to patch vulnerabilities, as well as coupled with a vulnerability assessment tool, then you're probably going to get breached. If you're not utilizing multi-factor authentication on just about everything, you're probably going to get breached. If you don't have adequate network layer security, you're probably going to get breached. Uh, If you're trying to do it on your own, you're probably going to get breached. Okay, It's just the world is difficult right now. So a lot of this is counterparty risk. Who are your counterparties? And what's the support model that you have with them? So let's get further on into some other counterparty related things that have to do with the Internet of Things devices. So you have the the Ring devices, the Amazon Alexa junk, uh, you know, physical door access controllers, surveillance cameras, uh, Internet radios, 
smart TVs, thermostats, you name it. These are the Internet of Things. Just today I saw an article from the FBI where they were pointing out the Captain Obvious, <laughs> where the FBI is now recommending that you should put all these IoT devices on a guest network. <laughs> and I laugh because people like myself have known this since the year 1997. This is not anything new. The And recently, H.R. 1668 was passed, and it was the Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act. So yay for that! You can go out to the Library of Congress website and go check it out if you're interested. It's called uh, the Cyber, the, the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act. What will come of that, no one knows at this point in time. However, I think having something that incentivizes and sets standards for IoT manufacturers to get them to start to follow the NIST cybersecurity framework is a good thing, right? That's a that's a really good thing. Because they should have been following it this whole time. I mean, it's not like the NIST CSF is anything new. It's been around for in excess of 20 years. So the fact that they've been making insecure IoT devices is it's just pathetic that's that's just it it's just that they have not cared anything about security so uh on to counterparty risk more uh, millions of medical scans sensitive medical images were exposed online and this is a, an article from zdnet and you know so you know, where are you going to have your medical imaging done? You know, what is their cybersecurity posture? Can they pass a SOC 2 audit? Well, if they can't, then they're probably not secure enough. Then there's the whole solar winds issue. So this is a bit of an interesting thing because the entire IT community for at least a month has been in a major uproar over the SolarWinds compromise. And this is because so many enterprises, including the federal government, used SolarWinds and internationally as well. So what basically happened in a nutshell is that due to a series of less than optimal and most definitely avoidable security practices, uh, poor security practices, I should say, SolarWinds was able to be compromised and the servers where the code base for software updates for their Orion product. So the code base where those software updates was stored, that resource was compromised. Now, part of the problem is it wasn't caught because they do not have policies and procedures in place that 
are comprised of downloading the code base after it is compiled and doing a decompile and a validation checking to verify whether or not the DLLs and XEs that are included in that published code base are actually the ones that are supposed to be there. Because had they had that as a business process, they would have found that someone had injected a malicious DLL. Then they were not utilizing security scanning services that look for exposed credentials on the internet. The FTP write access credentials for the SolarWinds primary public facing server was SolarWinds123 and it was published on a GitHub publicly accessible forum. So that's fail number two. Fail number three was that their public facing downloads server was actually an FTP server that allowed write access through the WAN interface. That was fail number three. So that's probably the tip of the iceberg, okay? Um, I know for fact also that some of the initial compromised vectors had to do with insecure configurations associated with Office 365 tenants, otherwise known as Microsoft 365. And so, again, counterparty risk. Who set up your Office 365 tenant? Who's doing the network layer security? Uh, who's doing the endpoint protection? Who's doing IDS IPS scanning? Uh, Who's, do, who's in charge of writing policies and procedures for a compliance perspective? You know, who's watching the ship? All of these things, counterparty risk. Now, if you happen to be a user of SolarWinds Orion product, then what counterparty risk do you have as a user of SolarWinds Orion? And what are you doing in order to mitigate that counterparty risk? Right? These are things that you absolutely have to think about. Now let's get into this whole element of why SolarWinds was hacked. There are certainly some brouhaha hubbub that suggests that it was Russian hacking, although I believe that it was uh, actually deep state actors who control the Dominion voting machines. And it's very well published who controls the Dominion voting machines. That's not even up for debate and I'm not going to waste time on this forum discussing that. What I will say, though, is that Dominion, the Dominion voting machines and Dominion, the company itself, claimed that SolarWinds Orion was not utilized with the Dominion voting machines, yet there is absolutely irrefutable publicly available evidence that shows that the Dominion voting machines were covered by the Orion, SolarWinds Orion agent. And what they did after the SolarWinds breach became public knowledge is that they edited the agent display to take not only the SolarWinds logo off of the Dominion voting machines, but also the SolarWinds name. Now the backend components of it were actually still there. So that is some incredibly dirty pool being played by 
dominion. So why was SolarWinds hacked? Well, were the Dominion voting machines compromised through the SolarWinds Orion agent? Or were they compromised literally through backdoors in the Dominion voting machine software itself? I don't have that information. But I do know that this is exposing something that people should have been being very very front of mind thoughtful to for a very long period of time which is counterparty risk so if you're not thinking about counterparty risk in your organization you need to be thinking about that and this leads me to talk about you know outsourced knock and sock and help desk so let's spend a little bit of time on that topic because that's fairly hot as well. Outsourcing to a competent IT provider makes a lot of sense. However, you have to be asking the correct questions about who you're outsourcing to based upon what criteria and what actually matters. The thing that seems to always be a prevalent argument is how big is your company how many people do you have and how big is your help desk <clears throat> now the reality is is that those factors are irrelevant if you look at most of the outsourced knocks they are in excess of 50 people some of them are up to 700 so if you use an outsourced knock of that many people, do you know who has what access at what time? Can you audit it? Do you have visibility into what they've done? And the reality is, is that most of these organizations do not have that level of audit capability. And even if they do, how can you possibly achieve management cohesion and consistency of service delivery across 50 to 700 people are they going to be utilizing shared credentials from a regulatory framework perspective there is no regulatory framework out there that allows you to utilize shared credentials and so if you do use shared credentials then you need to have other compensating controls in place and you need to be specifying that, okay, well, you're just not going to be compliant on this particular aspect. What I consistently hear from outsource Knox is that the only way that they can scale is if they do not use role-based access control, if they do not use IP access control restrictions, and if they have a large team that all has the same level of full admin access to every customer and that they're using shared credentials without multi-factor authentication and even in circumstances where they are using multi-factor authentication that's still a shared credential so what level of audit control do you have over that does that pass 
regulatory assessment muster? In a lot of cases, the answer would be no. So and we have to look at what SSPs are, strategic security plans for information technology systems, which is going to pretty much be everything out there because every component of just about everything that you have nowadays needs to have a strategic security plan. You could even argue that your automobile needs to have an SSP because your automobile has firmware in it that should be verified for updatedness at least every year. And if it isn't up to date, then you should update it. But you should also in your strategic security plan be having a policy and procedure around how that update is done. So does it make sense to get on guest wireless or insecure wireless or just to you know, allow anyone to go do this update to the firmware of your car? Well, I would argue, no, that's not a good plan. It's no different than it's not a good plan to go and take your uh, smartphone and just plug it into some uh, USB public charger. If you plug your smartphone or any device that is basically a miniaturized computer and you go and plug it into a public USB charger, you very likely are going to get that device hacked. In the last year, I had a number of people ask me if they should get those electrical outlets in their house <clears throat> that are these combo devices where they, you know, they have these little USB chargers built into them. And I've advised people to not get that stuff because do you really want your phone to be getting hacked or your devices in general to be getting hacked simply because you've got this wall outlet thing that is now going to function not just as a charger, but it can function potentially as a data transfer hijack device. And do you trust the maker of that? What are the firmware updates on it? You know, if, if the thing is, is that what you can trust is actually the power brick charger that came with your device, then that's what you should use. I'll make another suggestion. Have you seen the uh, contact, well, they're not necessarily contactless, but they're, I guess, more like wireless charging, okay? And I hate using the term wireless charging because the term wireless has been so overutilized. But it's effectively like a charging pad that you just simply place your device on top of. So you're not actually connecting in a charging cable. So the... The nice thing about that approach is it obviously is putting less wear and tear on the charging port on your device, but it's also doesn't have the ability to go and install some sort of a remote control device or a screen sharing or anything like that 
it doesn't have the ability to do that. You know, it's a wireless charger for your device. That's all it is, right? It doesn't have the ability to go and hack your device. So these, you know, again, counterparty risk, right? I'm trying to get you to think in terms of counterparty risk. There's been way too much trust placed in companies just because they're deemed to be large. Well, how big was SolarWinds? Enormous. SolarWinds is an extremely long tenured company. They've been around over 25 years. They're deemed to be, you know, an industry standard company used by a ubiquitous level of enterprises around the world. And they have an enormous product suite. Many of their products are in the security space. Yet, they were hacked at a phenomenal level and through them, everyone who utilized SolarWinds Orion and its connected assets got basically hacked. So, you know, you're never going to be able to eliminate counterparty risk, but you need to be extremely cognizant of what that counterparty risk is. This is one of the reasons why I don't recommend that people, you know, if you're running a business and somebody is trying to sell you on cloud-hosted servers, realize that they can disconnect you from those assets. What is your data strategy for getting your data off of that if you need to get off of it? What legal access rights do you have to that? I mean, you're talking about a rental consumption model. And it can be okay, depending upon the legalities of the contract. But that's something you have to be extremely cognizant of. And usually what I see with these cloud-hosted things, especially cloud-hosted servers, because it's not... It's very difficult to do cloud-hosted servers inexpensively. I mean, you basically cannot do it inexpensively. If somebody is telling you that they can get you a cloud-hosted server for less than $300 a month, then they're probably misleading you pretty drastically on something. So something isn't being done properly with that. So... <clears throat> How do you navigate counterparty risk? Well, one of the things that we do for people in general is we do risk assessments. There's a friend of mine who runs another very large, uh, n not large in size of company, but large in size of influence and capacity, uh, a managed services provider, specifically a managed security services provider. And they also do risk assessments. And in the industry, there's very few companies out there that are able to do real risk assessments. Certainly, there are penetration testing companies. And a quick funny story on a penetration testing company scenario is I've recently had a conversation with one of the largest penetration testing companies in the United States. And as part of this, they were... You know, we were talking about the logistics of how to actually execute or effectuate the penetration test in an environment. 
And I asked them what their methodology was for how to effectuate this in an environment that had a, you know, that actually had high quality network layer security. So like, let's say your phones are on a separate VLAN from servers, separate from wireless PCs versus wired PCs versus printers, etc. Okay, so you've got appropriate <clears throat> quantities of network layer security going on here. And how do you then effectuate a penetration test on all these subnets? Especially when they're isolated. You know, they're isolated because these devices function in a different security zone profile. And <laughs> the entertaining component of this is they said, and I was like talking to some of the top guys in the company when I was having this conversation. They said, we're going to have to connect you with the CEO of the company because we don't know the answer to that. And I, and I said to them, but wait, you guys do penetration testing for the federal government, right? Yeah, we do. Okay. So has nobody actually asked this question before? And they confirmed that, yes, nobody had actually asked that question before. So I then really started to wonder very deeply what the results of penetration tests are actually accomplishing if when you're paying for a pen test, if it isn't actually being cognizantly facilitated on every isolated VLAN on a network. Because if you're not doing that, then all that you're getting is security theater assessment. You're getting a penetration test on a particular subnet and that's it. You're not actually doing a security assessment on all of the assets and all of the subnets. And a typical small to medium business is going to pay anywhere from twelve to $18,000 for a penetration test. So I would think that you would want to effectuate an assessment of all of the assets on all of the subnets. And so if the methodology requires you to do special things in order to make that happen, because it's not going to happen by default on a secured network, and if the penetration tester actually does not have any processes in place where they are prompting you to effectuate that, because see, nobody had ever asked the question before. According to them, nobody had ever asked the question before. So as part of their onboarding processes for the project, they had no process to get the penetration testing asset on all of those different VLANs. Well, then I guess you're not going to have a complete penetration test in general without that. So, wow, I mean, that's pretty mind blowing as to the severity of the gaps that exist in so many things out there. And if you're continually relying upon this, oh, we have faith in Google. Well, I can tell you that every single week, my IPS system picks up things that are coming from Google that would have otherwise hacked us had it not been for the IPS system. Okay. Do you should you trust Google? No. Should you trust Microsoft? Well, clearly not because Microsoft actually has the most security vulnerabilities of any company worldwide. 
Now, you might argue that that's because they probably have the most highly utilized software of any company worldwide, and that would be true. So this whole trust is something that that has to be earned and it has to be contextual. It cannot be trust across the board. So start asking your vendors some hard questions. You know, ask them how frequently are they reevaluating systems to verify that deprecated software is getting removed from the machines? How quickly are they patching? How many days are going by? If, you know, if it was patch Tuesday, and now it's the Wednesday following Patch Tuesday. Are the patches deployed to your machine by that period of time? And if not, when will they be getting deployed? What's the process for handling deprecated uh, vulnerable software? What's the process to do security assessments on the endpoints? You know, how frequently does that happen? I mean, I reject the idea that an annual penetration test is going to do much of anything. I mean, I, I can see the value in them maybe once every three years, but bluntly, if you don't have a process in place to effectuate configuration validation on a monthly basis at a minimum, then you're not getting the job done and that's not gonna pass compliance muster. So today's show was on counterparty risk. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was thought provoking and causes you to start thinking about what's going on with your business and uh, who you're using for technology.